0: speaking words of edification rather than words of um, instruction. And then the final area that I typically cover, and since I wasn't able to cover this today, I hope it might stay in the service here, is this whole issue of practicing forgiveness with one another. How does the gospel of grace begin to reshape the way that we deal with the wrongs that are committed against us and the wrongs that we commit against one another? Uh, we're going to fail, When it comes to conflict, we're going to do conflict wrong. We're going to fail many times when it comes to our speech. So what does it look like for the gospel to enable us to practice forgiveness and to see our relationship prepared and restored? Uh, That's what I'd like to consider this morning. I want it to be very, very simple yet practical for you as you think about what this looks like in your own life. Um, The broader teaching of Matthew 18, if you look at the entire chapter, whole is a um, very, very uh, um, radical teaching that, that Jesus is uh, uh, giving that talks about what it looks like to live in His kingdom. And so you see different aspects of what it means to, to live in the kingdom of God as a child of God. And the one piece that I'm throwing out here out of Matthew 18 is the bulk of the chapter is that. When we are when we are brought into the kingdom of God, we we begin to practice radical forgiveness,
1: and that is what this uh, parable is about. It is
0: about the practice of radical forgiveness, and it's also a warning for those of us who don't practice practice radical forgiveness, uh, like the uh, the unmerciful servant. Uh, in the in the parable, you of course have a king. And he was owed probably 15 to 20 years' worth of wages from a servant. All right, um, and then you have a servant who is owed several months' wages from a fellow servant. The king forgives the servant immediately, leaves, and fails to forgive his fellow servant who owes him less than what he just been forgiven. And the point of the parable is how in the world that someone who just been forgiven 15 plus years of death not immediately and quickly forgive a fellow servant several months yet that, that just seems inconceivable how in the world is that the case well I think that that's exactly what we do and Jesus is warning us in terms of uh, life in the kingdom what does it look like to practice radical forgiveness and why don't we practice radical forgiveness how is it that we so easily forget the grace and mercy that we've been shown in Christ and then don't practice that with one another. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to just highlight um, some very practical aspects of what forgiveness is, what it isn't, and then end by talking about why is it that we struggle to practice forgiveness in the same way that the servant to, to practice forgiveness, the strong servant. So, that's where we're going. Uh, Practicing forgiveness. First thing I want you to understand is that practicing forgiveness is not just something we do with big infractions and sins committed against us or the sins that we commit against others. It really is something that is to be practiced every single day of our lives. We have ample opportunity and we're spending a lot of time with other people either to sin against or sin against them. So, the practice of forgiveness is something that we're to incorporate into our daily lives. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. To forgive the incessant provocations of daily life. You experience incessant provocations? You know, they may not be outright heinous, things, but maybe it's just uh, a sarcastic cutting remark that someone says to you, or maybe to you. Saying that sarcastic cutting remark, gossip that happens within the body of Christ, all of these kind of What you might call normal sins, the incessant complications of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, and I would add (laughs) father-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son, how can we do it? Only I think by remembering where we stand, by meeting our words when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So, C.S. Yes, Lewis well, is capturing, I think, the sense of how very practical privacy forgiveness ought to be and how regularly we ought to be practicing. I'm married. I have four kids. I have all kinds of opportunities. You ought to be giving me to ask for forgiveness for I against my wife and children and for them to come to me and ask for forgiveness for their sin against me. So, what is forgiveness? Point number one, forgiveness is canceling a debt. If you look at the parable, uh, you look at verses 27 and 32, that's the metaphor that, that uh, Jesus is using. privacy forgiveness, forgiving another person, is the same as canceling a debt. King canceled the debt of the servant. The servant did not cancel the debt of his fellow servant. And that's the, the imagery that we're seeing here. Uh, let me push that a little bit further. Forgiveness is canceling a debt. Forgiveness is absorbing the cost of someone's sin against you, right? If you borrow something from me and you return it and it's broken, you have two choices in order to fix it, right? Either you can pay it and get it fixed, or I forgive the fact that it's been returned in a broken state, and I cancel your debt, but guess what? If it's going to get fixed, I've got to pay for it. Somebody's going to have to pay. And that's the case, isn't it, in terms of our forgiveness with God? When He forgives us the debt that we owe, it just doesn't evaporate into thin air. Someone has to pay it, and that's the whole message of the gospel. Jesus comes to make payment for our sins. So, forgiveness is you making a decision to absorb the cost of what has been done to you. You choose to absorb the cost. How do you do that, Crack? Right? Three things. Number one, you make a promise that you're not going to use it against the other person. You see, when you use it against the other person, what are you doing? You make condemn that. Uh use it against them to get power over them. Uh you promise not only to use it against them, but you promise not to uh to gossip about them and ruin their reputation. Right? And, and talk to others about what they've done. And so often we do that. Can, can you believe so and so did this to me? And what are we doing? We're ruining their reputation. We're making them pay by ruining their reputation. So we make a promise not only to bring it up, not to use it against them, to not share it with others, but we also make a promise not to dwell on it in our own minds and replay the experience of what they've done to us over and over. We're making those basic promises, so that, in essence, is what forgiveness is. Uh, of course, a failure to forgive involves making the other person pay. How do you make the other patient person pay? You you continue to re- rewind the DVD or the Blu-ray version of what they've done to you. You talk to others about what they've done to you. You use it against them constantly. You make them pay for what they've done to you. That's when you fail to forgive. Forgiveness also, third point, is, is an, not just an event, but an ongoing process. I think if you look at um, uh, this question of Peter, Peter says, how many times should I forgive someone? And Jesus says, we're to be infinitely forgiving of people. Now we're going to qualify that in a moment, but forgiveness is not just an event, it's a process. Someone sins against you, you make a promise to absorb the cause kind of forgiveness. That is an event. That's something you decide to do. By God's grace. Now, if you see that a day later, or three days later, or a week later, you're going to be tempted to say, you know what? I chose to forgive you six days ago, but I'm seeing you again, and all of what we've done to you is we've brought to the surface again, and you know what? I think I'm going to change my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I think after all, I will you see, so what is, what is Peter struggling with this, this idea of radical forgiveness? We're not going to forgive someone in the past as an event, but we're to continue to practice forgiveness of that person as a process. We, we intimately forgive them. We make a commitment to not take up the events days later or months later or years later and make them take up any so very important we understand it. forgiveness is a commitment. Forgiveness is an ongoing process. You have to continue to live on the basis of that commitment you made in the past. The fourth thing: failure to forgive others turns victims into victimizers. When the servant who was owed several months' wages fails to forgive his fellow servant, notice what happens. He begins to choke He throws his family in prison. You see, he was sent against. He was a victim. But then because he fails to forgive the person that victimized him, he now becomes a victimizer. He changes. He becomes harsh and bitter and cold. And he begins to victimize others. When you fail to forgive another person, it begins to change you. You don't remain the same you become cold and hard and bitter and though you have been wrongly treated though you have been victimized when you fail to forgive it turns you into the very person that sinned against you you become a victimizer of the people now this passage is teaching us this just this, this idea of radical forgiveness and and many people think well if that's the case then I'm just making myself a doormat for people to run over me, right? Well, thankfully, the Bible is more sophisticated and nuanced than that. Uh, nowhere in Scripture will you find the command that says, make it easy for people to against you." If you can find that verse, please show it to them. There are a lot of passages about suffering for righteousness sake, and we don't have any But nowhere in Scripture does it say, make it easy People to sin against you. In fact, that isn't a very loving thing. So let someone continue to say against you, it's not a very loving thing to do. Um, And if you look at uh, the broader context again of Matthew 18, you'll see that the the passage is not teaching that forgiveness means peace at all costs. That I'm to forgive and I'm to continue to make it easy for people to sin against me. Why? Because if you look at chapter 18, verse 15, what does it say? If someone sins against you, go and show them his fault. You see, right within the context of Jesus' teaching on radical forgiveness, he gives us very wise instruction about how to deal with sins when they are committed against us. We're being called to move compassionately with a forgiving spirit and attitude towards other people to address the wrongs that they're committed against us, particularly when they're Christians. And then when they don't listen, when they refuse to admit sin against us, Jesus goes on and says, and here are the other steps that we're taking. So there is this place in Scripture where we have the ability to redress wrongs. We're not being asked to make it easy for people to sin against us. And it is quite a loving thing to do when you are truly sent against to move towards that person who is sent against you in love and uh, seek to address the wrong has been committed against you. So forgiveness is not peace at all costs. Another point forgiving others is costly. There
1: are no other people
0: standing in front of you today and act as if forgiving others is easy. It's not. Uh, the king forgiving the servant was not easy it was costly. The servant uh, forgiving his fellow servant was not easy. Just because it was seven months' wages to than 15 years doesn't I mean it was anything easy. that's a significant amount of money in this culture. Several months wages. Um, and so the passage is, is reminding us that forgiving others will be costly. It will cost you something to forgive others. I think the passage is also teaching us that a failure to forgive is costly as well. And uh, you see that not only in the actions of the servant that fails to forgive the fellow servant. He becomes a hard, bitter person, begins to sin against his fellow servant. He becomes a victimizer. But Jesus is actually highlighting a greater cost that we face if we fail to forgive. Look at verse 35. This is how my Heavenly Father will treat you. Unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, that is, that is a very sober and warning, isn't it? What does Jesus say? Jesus is saying, if you're, if you claim to be in the kingdom, a a child of the living God, and you have received the experience of fresh mercies and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and yet you are not practicing radical forgiveness with others, Jesus is saying that that's saying something about the true nature of your own heart. An unforgiving heart is an unforgiving heart. You are evidencing the fact that you have not truly experienced the mercy of Christ, and as a result, your eternal state is in, in terror, right? There, is, there are serious consequences. Jesus is not saying that you earn your salvation by forgiving others. He actually says you express the fact that you have been forgiven and received grace and mercy by forgiving others. So if you fail to forgive others, it's an indication of the condition of your heart, that your heart has not been cleansed and be forgiven by the mercies and grace of Jesus. So forgiving others is costly. Failing to forgive others is even more costly. In fact, it has an eternal cost associated with it. Now those are things that are explicit within the text. I just want to make three more points that are not explicit in the text but you find in other places in Scripture as you think about practice and forgiveness. I think they are very, very important for us to reflect upon. We want to be practical. Um, Forgiveness is first vertical and then it is horizontal. We talk about forgiveness as an attitude and we talk about Reconciliation. Between our brothers and sisters in Christ, the horizontal dimension. What do I Well, there are two seemingly contradictory verses in Scripture. Mark 11:25 25 and Luke 17.3. Mark 11:25 25 says, If someone sins against you, immediately forgive them. Okay? Then you look at Luke 17.3 and it says, if someone sins against you, if they repent, then you forgive them. So you say, well, which is it? It seems as if we have a contradiction here. One verse explicitly says that someone says against you, immediately forgive them. The other one puts conditions on their forgiveness and says you're only to forgive them if they repent. Well, which is it? Both. What do I mean? Um, the Mark 11 and 25 pages, to understand forgiveness as an attitude, the vertical dimension of forgiveness. If someone sins against me, I am to consistently practice radical forgiveness attitude to them, towards them. I am not going to make you bad. I am going to absorb the cost of the sin that you've committed against me. That is the vertical dimension of forgiveness that we are always to practice with somehow. Now, our hope is. Luke 17.3, the horizontal, that if we go and speak to our brother or sister, or they may initiate and come to us, they own their sin, they confess their sin, they ask for forgiveness, we can grant them forgiveness, and then we can be reconciled horizontally. You can't be reconciled to someone who's not admitting to their sin and repent of that sin, right? So we are always to practice the vertical. That's the Mark eleven twenty five aspect of forgiveness, the at, attitudinal aspect of forgiveness, and we're hoping for the transactional piece of forgiveness that horizontally you and I can be reconciled. If indeed you sin against me, you own your of you forgiveness, you I can then grant you forgiveness. That's the hope. But we're always to practice the vertical and hope in hopes that the horizontal will become a reality. Very important piece to remember. Um, forgiveness is not forgiving. Alright? People say this, well, if I've really forgiven him, or if you've really forgiven him, then you will remember what he Now, it's just possible to continue to hold on to someone's sin against you and become bitter, but just because you have not Forgotten what has been committed against you does not necessarily mean you have to commit uh, someone. Right? Um, particularly if the, the sin that they committed against you is great. I, I counsel people who have been grievously sinned against. There's no way that they're ever going to forget something that someone else did because it's so harsh and demeaning and grievous. Um, sometimes little infractions that people have uh, committed against us. Uh, as we forgive them, we, we might forget the bigger infractions. We may never forget. But just because you haven't forgotten doesn't mean that you haven't forgiven them. And we get into this wrong thinking about forgiveness because we, we don't handle scripture right. Like, uh, Jeremiah 31, 34 says this, that God forgives us and he separates our sins as far as the easiest or the west. And then the passage goes on to say the translation in most translations, and he will remember them no more. And so, what we do is we say, well, if God forgives our sins, and that's an aspect of his forgiveness of us, then it seems natural that if we forgive others, we should also forget, not remember their sins. The problem with that is you're wrongly interpreting that passage. The word "remember" in Jeremiah isn't a memory word. God, that is does God have amnesia? Hmm. Does He forget your sins? No, He doesn't. The, the, the passage really should be written this way: I will separate your sins as far as east is from the west, and I make a covenantal promise that I will not treat you as your sins disposed. You see that? And that is that is what forgiveness is. I will not treat you. As your sins deserve. Even though I never may forget what you've done to me, again, I make this covenant, this promise, this commitment that though I don't forget, I won't treat you as your sins deserve. Very important, forgiveness is not necessarily forgiving. You may forget, but if it's a major question, you may never forget. That does not necessarily mean that you've had to forgive someone. And then finally, the way you ask for and grant forgiveness is crucial. I talked about this yesterday. There's a difference between an apology and asking for forgiveness. Uh, when you apologize to someone, you apologize for accidents. right? If I accidentally spill a hot cup of coffee on someone this morning, I accidentally knocked it off the stand. you are sitting here. That's an accident. I say, I'm sorry. I apologize. Oftentimes in the body of Christ, we try to apologize for sins. Someone, uh, um, sins against us, and, um, or we sin against them, and we say, I'm sorry. What do they typically say? Yeah. That's okay. Well, you just have one person who has said, it's okay for me to sin against you, and the other person is free. Yes, yeah, it's okay for me to sin against you. But neither one has acknowledged the sin sin to commit. Now what happens in a situation like that is, because, because sins have not been addressed and forgiveness is not been granted, oftentimes they root of bitterness begins to in the relationship. Yeah. I've seen this in, in, uh, relationships between husbands and wives. Uh, spouse has apologized, but all the while he's been, or she's been clearly sinning against their spouse, and their spouse for years has said it's okay, but truly doesn't really believe it's okay. And you have one person who's never admitting that they sin, and another person who it's "Okay, but they really don't mean it's okay?" And they're really upset and bitter and mad. Twenty years in the marriage. Um, here's what it looks like to practice forgiveness. If I sin against you, right? If I purposely throw a hot cup of coffee on my brother and sister over here, I don't say, oh, "I'm sorry," and they say, "It's okay." No, I have to say. In my anger I sin against you by throwing that hot cup of coffee on you. Will you forgive me? Now they can't say it's okay. Because will you forgive me is a yes or no answer, right? So now we have an opportunity. I own my sin made Navy. That's a good step. Now we have an opportunity, if they said yes, for us to be reconciled. And as a result, our relationship should be prepared, and I want to be very deep and become more mature as a well. result. Very important, as we think about our relationships with our spouses, our children, brothers and sisters in Christ, and by Christ, naming needing sin, and owning and asking for forgiveness, and then that, that opportunity to grant forgiveness, that is, that is one of the unique aspects of Christian faith. So we live out the gospel before one another and with one another. Now that, that's the teaching of forgiveness. And this passage Matthew 18 is saying, you know, why don't we practice this kind of radical forgiveness? You look at the parable and you look at the servant and he said, he was forgiven. Fifteen plus years wages. And he writes out immediately, can't forgive his fellow servant. rose and seven months. Why did he that? But he quickly forgets what he has been forgiven, right? And I think that is also often the case with us. How is it that you and I quickly forget the great forgiveness that has been granted us in Jesus Christ? I would mention two, two ways that this happens, and it is oftentimes the reason we don't practice forgiveness as we close it this morning. There are three of them, I'm just going to mention two. This one is somewhat shocking. You really don't believe you need to be forgiven by God. You're in your city and are thinking, wait a minute, come on. No one would actually say that. Of course we wouldn't actually say it, but functionally we live that way. Here's how we, here's how we do it. When was the last time someone said against you? Maybe you do what I tend to do. My natural reaction is, I can't believe what we just did it last me. Then I go a step further. I would never do that. Mm-hmm. Right? What have I just done? i just said, I'm no longer in a category of real big center. I'm over here in another category, you know, of less big center. I can't believe I did that to me. I would never do that. Now, what happens when you take yourself out of the category of a big center who is capable of doing anything and everything that anyone else is capable of doing? All of a sudden, you take yourself out of the context of the sinner and you say, you know what, I need God's mercy, but I don't need that much. And and when you take yourself out of that category, what happens is you say, I don't need as much as other people. The immeasurable monsoon of God's grace and forgiveness in my life. And as a result, guess what? You're probably not going to be a conduit of that grace and mercy into other people. we are not receiving it. It's not going to flow out. And we we cut ourselves off because we take ourselves out of the category of Satan's sentence. John Owen was a puritan who said the seed of every is in my heart. I am capable of anything and everything apart from the grace and mercy of Jesus. So we functionally kind of take ourselves out of that category and be desperate Need from day to day. I became a Christian over 30 years ago. I'm as dependent and needy on God's grace today, right like now, as I lost 30 plus years from first question Christ. If I fail to remember that, then I become someone who doesn't display that same forgiveness and grace and mercy. Final, reason, final point, and, and the final reason that I think we often don't practice forgiveness is that we become jaded. You know, we come to church, we go through the liturgy, we sing the songs. we listen to the scripture readings, but we begin to lose a sense of shock and amazement that God actually has forgiven us. It just becomes kind of a, a hazy memory, something that happened to me in the past. And and again, as a result, what happens? Because we, we're losing sight of that great grace and mercy that which shown us, we are people who practice radical forgiveness with others without receiving it and therefore it's not getting expressed? And it's because we lose sight of the amazement and our shock the gospel of grace. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, uh, you probably are familiar with it, and can it be that I should name? I don't know if, um, how the tune goes here, it does it in the state. We have different ways of seeing it in the state, uh, but uh, he uh, goes something like this: man, man, uh, and and um, <laughs> But uh, you know, you're singing it, and your mind is thinking more about the staying on pitch and bouncing around the notes that we don't realize what's actually being said. And one of the pieces that drops out is the explanation, for the, the punctuation at the end of the
1: Look at what Charles Wesley said, saying. he said, saying,
0: And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Now, when you get to a question mark, what, what happens here? How do Malaysian people end the sentence with a question mark? Does it go up? Okay. So, in the States, you would say, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? It ends going up because you're asking a question, and Wesley's asking a question, and what does it say? Is this really True. Now, wait! This is this is too good to be true. This is utterly shocking. Can it be? And then there's another question: Die be for me? Cost this pain? He's, he's shocked by the, the truth of the grace and mercy of the gospel for me. You me of all people? Me who went to death pursuit? Then there's this exclamation: What amazing love! And then he goes back to the question mark: How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You see that? That's that. It's that. Living in, in the, the wonder of the amazing grace of the gospel. We change amazing grace to a whole bunch of grace. Amazing grace. how sweet as God has saved the red shining. To whole bunch of grace. Ah, okay. That sounds okay. that came along and helped a pretty nice person like myself. There's no,
1: there's no worship there, there?
0: Amazing. Sweet is now to save the Savior of to meet And can it be the question? And interesting to the Savior's blood. You see, what is Western We're living today in light of utter amazement and utter shock of the gospel grace that God, the King, would forgive us this immeasurable debt that He would absorb the cost. Now, how much more now should I begin to express that in my relationship with other people? That's the call of this this simple parable. It's a shocking, alarming parable that's intended to wake us to the greatness of God's grace for us in Jesus. Let's pray as we ask God's Father. There is not one among us, including myself, that is as easily uh, jaded in any given day and we lose sight of the other beauty of the gospel. And as a result, it translates into the way we treat other people. So would you have mercy on us? And even today, as we hear your word, as you speak to us by your spirit, through your word, as you reveal to us, your word, Jesus, the great message of... For us, it is our time. Would you awaken us to this wonderful, good news that is ours in Jesus' name? And, and as a result, enable us today, tomorrow, throughout this week to be people who practice radical forgiveness with those around us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.